what's still on my heart and still seems to be pressing for us here at our church is uh, understanding that if we're going to serve God, we're going to lose people. And Wednesday night, we had that pre-recorded message I did for you that was very, very punchy and very, very sharp in places, which really did surprise me because it was me and two cameras in here with like three scriptures to teach from. Just as my notes were three verses. And so the heat with which it was delivered let me know the fervency with which the Lord was concerned about it. If you haven't lost anybody, and by lose I mean not bury, but walk away from, lose a friendship, lose a sibling, lose a loved one, and have to walk away from them that you might remain obedient to Jesus Christ, don't worry, you will. And if you never have to, I would honestly judge you and question how fervently you're walking with Jesus, especially in the day that we're living in. The more you and I draw closer to Jesus, the more it will put an automatic default distance between us and the mediocre. And the Bible's very clear. The Lord doesn't see all Christians the same. Even when he first spoke to Abraham about the Abrahamic covenant way back in Genesis 12, and he begins to talk about this future people he was going to deliver to Abram. And he said, your seed will be like the sand of the sea. That's a lot of people. But he also said, and like the stars of the heavens. And you see there are two distinct groups of people. Sand of the sea, we would recognize as representing biological descendants. Whatever is of the earth is of the earth. Whatever is of flesh is flesh. But when he starts to talk about the stars of the heaven, that went way beyond DNA. That goes into the new covenant and those that shine like the stars of the heaven. Stars in the Old Testament is typically symbolic of God's people, God's leaders, God's anointed. Uh, Jesus is called the morning star. Lucifer was called star of the morning. Um, and there's a distinction there. But even when you look at stars, they don't all shine the same. They're not all the same size. They don't have the same magnitude. They don't have the same color as far as the light they give off. And so even with the Lord speaking to Abraham, saying, I'm going to give you a descendant, a seed, they're going to be like the stars of the heaven. It automatically, from the beginning, before they were ever born again people, there was going to be a distinction, and we wouldn't all shine the same. Thankfully, we can still be counted as stars and give off some light. Uh, but even in the church today, even in this church, we don't all shine the same. And that has nothing to do with giftings or graces or talents or callings. It has to do with the order to which we walk with God. The more we spend time in God's word, the more we spend time obeying his word, the more time we spend in prayer, the brighter we'll shine. Consequently, if we don't spend any time in prayer on our own, any time in the word on our own, we're going to be dim. And there'll always be a difference. There'll be a distinction between the bright stars and the dim stars and those that shine bright, 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 and those that just kind of twinkle. Twinkling is not what you want to be. It means you're not bright enough to overcome the world's pollution, the earth's haze. Stars, if you don't know, twinkle because of pollution in the atmosphere. The sun doesn't twinkle. It burns. But those stars that are so far away and so dim, their light is affected by dust particles in our atmosphere. And that does describe a lot of Christians. Their light is so weak, they kind of twinkle. Oh, here they are bright again, and there they are dim again. Oh, here oh, they're bright again, and oh, because they can't handle the day-to-day -day affairs of life. So even among the church, even among the born-again ones, we have those that shine bright and those that twinkle. What about those that don't walk with God at all? What's the difference between maybe our light and their light? So we have this issue, and we covered it with that Wednesday teaching, 
I was a little concerned about how rough it was delivered because I wouldn't know what the Holy Spirit would do with it on video. But then I was greatly encouraged because this conference we just came from, a lot of the messages were my exact same scriptures and my points, which made me feel really good about me. Even talking about why are we trying to help people that are moving away from God? So I made this point Wednesday, and I'll make it again, that as you and I serve Jesus, we're going to go upward and higher. And as Christians become more and more carnal, they will descend and drop. I'm not saying they're going to hell. Don't mishear me. But there's going to become a greater gulf between us. And at some point, we're not going to be able to maintain that. It will become an untenable relationship, and we're going to have to either part from them or part from God. I have a lot of friends from college I used to serve God with. We don't fellowship anymore because they don't serve God now. At some point in our relationship, I graduated college 24 years ago. So I graduated college 24 years ago. Sometime over the last quarter century, I continued to go higher for Christ, and they began to drift downward almost like a parachuter or a glider that can only maintain loft for so long. And at some point, there came a decision I had to make that either I was going to dumb down or back off my walk with Christ to come down to their carnal levels so that we can relate to each other, or I was going to pull away from the carnal person and go up higher still with Christ. Now, that, the decision's easy when it's not your emotions. For you to judge me, and I don't have a problem with judgment at all, let's be very clear here, we're a very, very judgy church because it's part of the human existence and experience. For you to judge me and say, well, pastor, the decision's obvious. You let them go so you can serve Jesus. And you're absolutely right. But it's an easy decision when your emotions are not involved. And that's why we have to keep teaching these kind of messages so your, your thick skull hears the word of God and overrides the emotions that beat within your chest about your brother or your favorite cousin or we were like sisters or, or my childhood friend or that's my grown child or they have my grandkids in their home now. When you and I can hear the word enough, it will cut through the malaise of, 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 and haze of emotions and reason. As time progresses towards infinity towards the end of all things, the end of the age, there'll become a greater distinction between the peripheral saint, the mediocre saint, the lukewarm saint, and the on fire for God saint. And it will even cause divisions among us and our parents. Jesus Christ promised that. That was our verse from Wednesday night, Matthew chapter 10, I think verse 36. Jesus promised, and he said, I have come to bring division. And we made that point that, wait, you mean one of the Lord's callings is dividing homes? That's what he said. He said, one of my callings is to come and divide homes. Now, we thought he was the great uniter. Things can only be united if they follow Jesus. We're living in a day where folks want to flirt with Jesus, but they don't want to serve him. They want his blessing, but they don't want him. And those folks will quickly fall away. This kind of message that I have this morning is to prepare us to rededicate our life to Christ, to answer the refrain of the Baptist hymn that though none go with me, I still will follow. What if that none is mom and dad? What if that none, that none is my favorite sibling? What if that none is my only child? What if that none is my favorite, my best friend? What if that none is a fellow minister? We still follow Jesus. So I want to give you some similar scriptures again. And I think perhaps one of the, the terms or the concepts I I taught Wednesday that was helpful was that 
What makes the distinction is the individual's hostility against us and our God. We know from 1 Corinthians 5 that we have to be able to fellowship with pagans. Otherwise, how do we win them? But it does give us that distinction in 1 Corinthians 5. If, a, if someone pretends to be a brother in Christ and pretends to have it right with God, but they're a fornicator, a slanderer, a gossip, a drunk, it says don't even, have, don't even eat with such a person. We must not forget the concept that there are people the Bible forbids us from fellowshipping with. Now, when you become a, a philosophical, emotion-driven, I don't know, 21st century saint, you'll override Scripture because the reasoning will be, well, who's going to win them? God has other people to win them. The Lord Jesus doesn't have a problem walking into somebody's bedroom, shaking their bed and saying, hey, you're going to hell. We must understand God doesn't want to risk losing us in hopes of gaining someone else. And you and I have to realize we can't believe the lie of the enemy that I have to be the person that saves my brother, my sister, my cousin, my old frat brother, my old sorority sister, my old coworker. If it's hurting us, we have to walk away. And the hardness of the New Testament is there are many places the Lord says, walk away from this person, shun this person, have no fellowship with this person, mark this person. And that, those, those applications extend even into our own biological family. So I'm trying to reiterate this. This is already feeling a lot softer than Wednesday night, which makes me happy because it means you heard whatever was said Wednesday night and your heart is already there. But I need to guess, come along and affirm this that we have to be prepared in these days that we're living in that the divide between what is acceptable and what is mediocre is becoming greater and greater. I made the notion, I think, Wednesday that it was easy to have fellowship with family 50 years ago because everybody served Jesus kind of the same. And even if you had a backslidden uncle, he wasn't hostile. He was ashamed and he was just happy to have any mercy you extended him at Thanksgiving or maybe at Christmas. But we don't live in a day of passivity and all of us Methodist, Baptist, Pentecostal kind of serving God in the same race, kind of head and jockeying in the same position. We're living in a day now where there's a hostility towards that nut job Christian aunt and a hostility towards that uncle that wants to pray over Thanksgiving. There's a hostility and that's what we have to begin to mark and realize we can't be around that attitude. Paul quoted a Greek philosopher when he said, don't be deceived, bad morals corrupt or bad company corrupts good morals. I believe the philosopher was a, a Menander was his name. He's, that's his quote, but Paul's using it as scripture. Bad company corrupts good morals. And so we have to keep that in mind. We're not stronger than the pagan, especially when the pagan is hostile. And we don't have a right to expose ourselves, our spouse, or our children to corruption. Don't believe the lie that you can get around somebody and rub off on them. According to the word of the Lord in Corinthians, quoting a Greek philosopher through the Apostle Paul, evil company is more powerful than good morals. Oh, I, don't, I don't like to hear it. But it doesn't say good, good morals bring up bad company. It says bad company, bad morals, bad character corrupts good morals. You and I have to recognize how strong we are and how strong our kids are. And you and I are going to answer to God for exposing our kids to wicked uncles, wicked cousins. Amen. So when the Lord says, come out from among them, when the Lord says, don't fellowship with them, those commandments even apply to biological family. And listen, I'm not here to ruin your Christmas. I'm not here to, to make things uncomfortable for you. I'm here to protect you. We want to finish our race. 
Your family already knows where you stand. So your light's already shown in their face enough. And it hasn't done any good yet. Not that you can see. Now, we believe we've sown. We believe we've watered. God gives the increase if it's there to give. But we also have to keep in mind not everybody's repenting. Not everybody's going to heaven. Not every backslidden Christian's coming home. Not every prodigal's returning. These are just the rules of, of the law, of the land. Now, we believe the best. We believe they will return. But at some point, we have to recognize, I'm done with Babylon, and I'm walking back to Israel. At some point, you say, this is done. I've done all I can do, and I've got to march on for Jesus. Now, remember, I used that example of as kids playing on the escalator. Some of you are like, what? Okay, that means you skipped Wednesday and haven't gone back and streamed it yet. How can you forget an escalator analogy? So I would stay on the escalator. My brother would be on the other side of the escalator on solid ground. The escalator, if you don't know, we don't really have malls anymore. Even the young people don't know what a mall is. Malls used to have escalators. That was a place you'd go play on escalators. If you don't know, these are moving stairs. They also look like they could make grated cheese out of your legs or your toes. And they thought they'd put a little cool green laser light at the end to let you know this is where you're going to bleed if you don't be careful. There's a little razor's just absorbing the next chair or the next stair. <laughs> so you know how this works. I feel like a moron having to explain it to you. So the, the stairs move forward and they begin to go up. So you and your brother, say, would hold hands just to be dumb kids. And as you go up and your brother stays on the ground... Now there becomes a tension between the two of you. You know where this is headed, even as kids. We know that we can only maintain this grasp for a period of time, and something will give. That's the whole reason you're doing it. And so your brother walks forward, and the escalator carries you up. And before long, there's a tension between you and your brother. You can feel that on your hands. And now to relieve the tension, you've got to start to really jankily bend over, and he has to extend his hand just to keep tension off. But at some point, you've bent over all you can. He's extended all he can, and now the tension is on your grip. And now something happens. The grip breaks, the brother goes up, or the other brother goes down. <laughs> That's physics. Something gives. Somebody, the tension only increases until it's relieved. Now, as kids, I'm sure we knew I can't really carry him all the way to the top because then how do we get him over the glass panel at the J.C. Penney or the Sears or whatever? <laughs> That's 20 feet. So usually he'd let go or whatever. You know, this is what's happening with us as we serve God. If you and I serve Christ as we ought, we're just going up. That's the upward calling. We have no other calling but upward, 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 upward. And we have zero permission to come down for anybody, not even your own spouse. You and I don't have permission to back off Jesus to accommodate a backslidden spouse. How does 1 Peter 3's wife win her husband if she backs off Christ? It says, by keeping her mouth shut by her holy chaste conversation, she will convict her husband and win him back. So even in a marriage that's under a lot of stress, you don't have permission to come off the escalator, the stairway to heaven, if you will. Don't listen to that music. <laughs> But as we serve God, and even if they stay status quo, which maybe the ground represents because it's not going down, they just stay the same, mediocre. There's still going to come a great gulf 
between you and the saint that just mediocrely serves God, lukewarmly serves God, Sunday morning only serves God. Even in this, this church, even this morning, some of you are only Sunday morning saints. There's a great difference between me and you. There's a great difference between you and my care deacons that come up here and lead prayer. And the difference is not value, it's heart and hunger. So even in a great house, we got all sorts of vessels and some to honor and some to dishonor. But my word that I want to give you that I feel the Lord saying that I've heard all week at this conference was that the gulf is becoming greater and greater and greater. And we have to, in our hearts, be prepared to make cuts. Not that we hate the loved one we leave behind, not that we hate the child we have to move on from or the old college friend or the childhood friend. We have to make the cut because Christ calls us upward and his calling comes before mama's. His calling comes before biological DNA. His calling and the calling to fellowship with him is greater than daddy's calling or your brother's calling or the grandkids calling. Our calling is upward and we don't have permission to come off the escalator to accommodate. The calling goes throughout the whole earth. It's for everybody. Come up, come up, come up, come up, come up. So let me give you a few verses so we can maybe look at the exhortation of the Lord. We, we said Matthew 10. Uh, if you want to write down verse 36, we won't turn there. Jesus said, a man's foes or his hostility shall be they of his own household. We made that distinction Wednesday night. How do we know when someone's becoming hostile or uh, a foe within our home? They're hostile towards our walk with God. Now, you can have someone in your home that isn't really serving God, but they're not hostile. You can, you can afford to fellowship with someone who's not hostile. The hostility is what begins to make the distinction. When they're hostile to you and your walk with God, that's when you have to mark them and say, you're dangerous. Your attitude is dangerous. Your walk is dangerous. Your carnality is dangerous. There are some folks, I, I get it all the time as a pastor. Somebody finds out I'm a minister. They can be half drunk. I told you I met this Polish man at the airport in Antibi. And he was drunker than Cootie Brown. That's the old hillbilly term for super, super drunk. Covered in tattoos. Actually, he and I have been emailing because uh, we exchanged numbers. He found out I was a pastor. Number one, he found out I was a Christian. Then he said, what are you doing in Uganda? I said, well, I'm a pastor. I'm on a mission trip. He said, you're a pastor. And he began to so, um, he's a backslidden Christian. He began to so defer to me. He says, Chris, I'm a Christian too. I have an alcohol problem. Again, he's got beer all over him, keeps putting his wet beer hand on my shoulder, which I just don't want to smell like beer for the next 20 hours of flying, which is my only issue with it. That and I don't drink beer. But he began to even defer to me as a backslidden saint. He was not hostile. He was open about his alcohol problem, even as he popped his third beer in our conversation. <laughs> you can get around folks that find out you're a Christian and they'll start apologizing for their vulgar language. Or you can get around a backslidden Christian who they find out you serve God and they'll cuss on purpose. I have friends like that that aren't really friends anymore. Hostility is what determines your fellowship ability. I don't care if you share the last name. Even in a marriage, if someone's hostile towards your God, you really can't have much fellowship with them. So now you're forced into prayer to turn the situation and something must give. So Jesus said uh, a man's hostile foes will be of his own household. But he said, uh, don't think I've come to bring peace. I've come to bring a variance. I've come to set a man at variance. So we said that that's not what the Lord intends to do. 
He doesn't look to destroy homes on purpose, but we said, as he passes through your home, some will gravitate towards him and others will distance themselves. That's the variance. The Lord Jesus would walk through this church this morning and set people against each other. Not that he'd say, you fight him. He could walk through our church, proclaim something. Half of us say, oh, Lord, yes, forgive me. Yes. And the other half say, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And it'd be the Lord Jesus. What we have to recognize is when we serve Jesus, the variance is by default. When we serve Jesus, distance is made by default. And we have zero permission to back off serving Jesus. No matter who in our life it makes look bad, no matter who in our life we end up leaving behind. You, will, you and I will sin against our God, abandoning him to go help somebody. If the Holy Spirit is resisting someone, we have no permission to help them. If the Holy Spirit has turned his hand against someone in the stiff arm of resistance, who are we to educate God? Who are we to instruct him? Who are we to say, Lord, what are you doing? How can you resist that man? And if you're spiritual enough, you can get around people and recognize when the hand of God is against them and you realize, I can't fellowship with you because my God doesn't. That's how we determine things. When God's in fellowship with them, we're in fellowship with them. When they're not in fellowship with God, we can't be in fellowship with God. All right, so let me give you, let's go to, let's go to Matthew 19. Let's read a couple verses. I don't like preaching this way because it means somebody needs to hear it. And I don't like preaching this way because it means somebody's going to need the strength of this doctrine to obey God, which then logically means you're going to have to leave family. And we're all for building families. We're all for our kids marrying the right people. We're all for our kids having grandkids that serve God better than us. We're all for that. But it doesn't happen. We met a lady yesterday uh, selling some of our bunk beds, our only set of bunk beds. It's not like we have a bunch. And you know how it is. You're like, you know, you're doing something on Reddit. I don't know how we sold these bunk beds. I don't care. But, you know, you throw that out there. Hey, got bunk beds. You want some? Come see them. Then you're inviting total strangers to your house. And even though this is cookful, it's still a weird day. And so they keep postponing us and putting my wife off. And I'm like, great. I'm going to have to put a pistol under my britches. Is how this thing's going to go. It's going to be some moron. Got my kids here. I don't know who these folks are. Pull up my truck. What are they going to do? So I'm thinking I'm going to get a pistol. Well, they pull up. Long story short, she's one of 12 kids, missionary kids. And so they do vacations together. And they said the grandparents, well, they have 40 grandkids already. A lot. Yeah, and, and some of them, because she's a younger girl, she has two kids, one of 12. But their parents were missionaries that did gospel translation work and flew gospel tracks all over the world. So, she's, so we were kind of witnessing to them. You guys go to church anywhere? Not really. And so come to find out, though, she said, oh, we love vacationing together. We have to get the mega house with the industrial kitchen. But she said, when we're together, we tribal family. What does that mean? We know how we are all on the same page, so we all discipline our kids the same. And they're able, with 12 siblings and 40 grandkids, to... Can you imagine doing vacation with 12 siblings and all the grandkids and there'd be peace and harmony? Now, here's the deal. That's the exception. And by default, when something is the exception, it is exceptional. Now, the other thing I thought of recently, sometimes we as Christians, we think we're the exception to God's rule. If you're the exceptions to God's rule, then you should be exceptional. Most Christians I have found who think they're except and exempt from God's word are far from exceptional at anything. 
So this young lady and her family apart, there's going to be a lot of us, we don't get to vacation together. They, we're not going to get to do Thanksgiving and Turkey Day together because the gulf is too great. So me teaching this lets me know some of you are going to need it, not just because we're a few weeks from Christmas, but because the, the day we're in is getting worse and worse and worse. My own family, the McMichael clan, we used to be able to do family reunions together down on the farm in Louisiana, and all the aunts and uncles and first cousins and second cousins and third cousins and fourth cousins, we'd all come together. But now we can't fellowship because we have so much sin, so much perversion, so much Christ mockery, and the family is only a small nexus of us who still serve Jesus in a way that we can fellowship together. It really is heartbreaking. So I want to give you these verses so that you can be strengthened. Matthew chapter 19 Verse 27, I'm reading out of the King James. Then answered Peter and said to him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? Let's back up to verse 23 and figure out why did Peter answer this. Verse 23 says, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I send you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? I thought they're rich. I thought if they're rich, the blessing of God was on them. So you mean rich doesn't equal right with God? And Jesus saying, Yeah, rich doesn't equal right with God. To the Jewish mindset, that was the blessing of Abraham. So you mean just because they're rich doesn't mean they're going to heaven or to the kingdom? And he said, no. So then who can be saved? And the Lord says, well, with men it's impossible. With God all things are possible. So then Peter says, hey, we've forsaken all. We're dirt poor. We got nothing. So you see the fluid thought. Rich people don't go to heaven. It's hard. Paul, Peter's like, well, we left everything, so then what do I get? That's what he asks. We followed all, and what shall we have therefore? Uh, New Living Translation says, so then what do we get? <laughs> We've given up everything. What do we get? Verse 28, Jesus said unto them, Verily I send you that you uh, which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So that's a promise for the 12 apostles of the Lamb, not you and I, because there's only 12 Thrones, they judge the 12 tribes. We're not Jewish. We're not tribal. Please hear me. Everyone in this room, as far as I know, is a Gentile. There's no Lowensteins, no Spielbergs, no Epsteins, no Goldbergs. We're all Gentiles in here. This is a promise for Peter and the 12. Matthias added in after Judas the traitor hanged himself and another took his office. You'll sit upon these 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And this one's for us. Everyone that hath forsaken houses... Some of you have sold dream houses to stay in the will of God. This is a promise for you. Or brethren, forsaken brothers, forsaken sisters, forsaken fathers, forsaken mothers, forsaken wives, forsaken children, forsaken lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. There is a calling that some people will have to answer where you may have to forsake property. You may have to forsake a father, a mother. You may have to forsake a marriage, not that you're divorcing them, not that you want to divorce them. Corinthians 7 tells us if the unbelieving depart, let them depart. You're not bound in such a situation. We're not talking about abandoning a marriage, but they abandon you. 
And so you don't chase after them. You chase after Jesus. Some of us will have to forsake mothers, children, land. But the promise is we will receive a hundredfold. Now, I don't need a hundred houses. I, I don't even want to maintain the one I have. <laughs> but when I go on missionary trips, I have homes everywhere. They're not mine, but they're in the family. I don't really want a hundred mamas. I don't do so good honoring the one I got. But I got a lot of spiritual moms too. And I don't necessarily need a lot of land. I just need land to preach on everywhere I go. The promise, we don't look at it as an equal tit for tat, eye for eye. We got to look at it as the Lord would look at it. But more importantly, I see this, we shall inherit everlasting life. This is what we're interested in. This is the concern that if we don't forsake something, it could cost us eternity. It could cost us everlasting life, eternal life. And you can tell that it's costing you eternal life because it's costing you the life of God now. This is the litmus test by which we can begin to even somewhat judge the danger of a situation. If you get around people and they suck joy out of you, well, that's, that's everlasting life being drained from you. And if they suck peace out of you and they suck goodness out of you and they suck gentleness out of you and you're really having to lean on the last couple fruit of the Spirit, self-control, <laughs> faithfulness to the Lord and the thou shalt not murder commandment. You're recognizing why the Lord says you may have to walk away from these people because you can't fix them. Some of us are addicted. We think we can fix anything and you can't. You and I have to even let somebody into our life to say, to judge us and say, I would leave that alone. Walk away. When I was backslidden at 18, and I had a, a friend who was interceding for me regularly to repent, Will Hutchinson. I call him affectionately Willie B. Willie B. was the one interceding for me to repent and start serving God again. The, the internal dialogue that I remember that came to me that brought me back to Christ was, why are you backslidden? And my, this is like the internal questions. I'm sure it was the Holy Spirit asking me. But why are, you, why are you backslidden? And my answer was, because I'm mad. So then the next question that was asked my heart, why are you so mad? And the answer was, I was honest with God, because God seems so far away. And then the next question was, and whose fault is that? And that's what broke me, the answer. I understood the answer. I understood the question. Whose fault is it God is so far away? And the answer is, well, it's mine. And that was the epiphany I needed to realize, wait, this whole thing's my fault. So then, then I asked myself, well, how do we get right with God? Well, you get your Baptist Bible out. Start reading that thing, stupid. How about you go find some Christians to hang out with instead of making fun of them? Oh, that makes sense too. The distance between me and God was my fault, not his. And the distance between you and your family is their fault, not yours. They control it because of their proximity to Christ. So when you have to cut them off, because we're going to have to, hopefully not soon, but it may come up, which is why we're teaching this, you can't take it personal. You have to be confirmed and convinced it's because they aren't with God. What was funny is in that season of being backslidden, all the Christians would witness to me, but they'd keep me at arm's distance. 
It's almost, not that I'm Paul, but it was like I was Paul. They didn't like me. They didn't trust me. I had an attitude, but they were concerned about me, the FCA crowd. But once I got right with God, I was sucked right into their fellowship, became one of them. How come we are including in our number those that aren't one of us? Why are we trying so dagnabbedly to hammer a square peg into a round hole, trying to force loved ones who we do genuinely love into the fellowship of the saints when they're not interested in fellowshipping with the saints? We're not as led by the Holy Spirit as we claim to be. Because if we were led by the Holy Spirit, we'd be able to tell who has the Holy Spirit on them and who doesn't. And if they don't have the Holy Spirit on them, we're keeping them at an arm's distance. And we're certainly not inviting them to bring their perversion into our fellowship. They repent first. So let's look at Mark 10. I want you to see that the Lord fully expects and does require of us, when appropriate, not just because you had a disagreement, not just because they didn't fix your favorite dinner at Thanksgiving or they corrected your kid because your kid's a brat, but when appropriate, we do have to withdraw or cut people off of our lives. Only God can restore it, and that's the way it ought to be. I want you to see the words of our Lord and Savior so that our faith is built so that we're not shocked when we have to walk away from people. Uh, This week, hanging out with several of my pastor friends, I even at that conference this week, there's probably 200 pastors, and I'm probably friends with 150 of them. I had two pastor friends who were both inherited their father's ministry. So think about two pastors, two pastor couples, husbands and wives. They both took over their pastor, their dad's established work. So now they're pastoring or their spouse, them and their spouse are pastoring their dad's established work, either because dad stepped down or dad went to heaven. So they have siblings that are married with kids because they're all my age. They're in their 40s. Who were raised preacher's kids, raised in the word of faith, Pentecostal, evangelical doctrine. And both these families told me, I don't even fellowship with my sibling or their family. We don't even have them over for dinner because their doctrine is so heretical. They're so hostile. They're so perverse. They're so backslidden. We can't even have our own church-raised sibling or their kids in our home for Thanksgiving. If it'll happen to preachers whose siblings were raised in the same ministry, under the same pew, in the same revivals of the 80s and 90s, the day that we're living is much worse than 30 years ago. So don't be deceived. Don't be discouraged. Mark chapter 10, verse 28. The same record of something we just read in Matthew's gospel. Then Peter said unto him, Lo, we have left all and have followed you. Mark 10, 29. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man, we would include woman, that hath left house, left, just leave it behind, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel's sake. But he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with a party because you are so blessed now and in the world to come eternal life. No, he couples it. It's like, all right, this is how you know you're doing it right. Persecution comes. You call yourselves a Christian. You won't even invite us over. When you call yourselves a Christian, you don't even want to see your grandchild. That's how you know you're talking to a demon. Do you enjoy fellowshipping with a demon? Do you want that demon slipping its doctrine into every conversation around every person in your family? So don't have them in your home. I think it's a pretty simple concept. 
So let me talk briefly again about prodigals. We have to hit this. I'm not concerned about anybody with prodigals right now. I think right now we have about four or five prodigal situations in our church. Grown children who know better living like the devil. That's how you know it's a prodigal. Let's go to Luke 15. Let me teach you something briefly about the prodigal that I've recently seen that I've never taught before. Just to review it, when you have a child that becomes a prodigal, you have to let them be the prodigal, which means you don't chase after them. Oddly enough, Dr. Barclay just taught on prodigals last week and taught stuff I've taught. I thought I feel pretty good because my pastor preaches my doctrine, or maybe I preach his. He said, you don't get to sneak the prodigal food. The servants didn't chase after the prodigal. They didn't send it. pastor said, warm bread and honey. You have to let the prodigal hit bottom. You have to let the prodigal hit every branch on the way out of the tree. You have to let them hit the bottom. And if you don't let them hit bottom, pastor would say it this way, your blood, their blood will be on your hands. They'll go to hell. It'll be your fault. So I've taught that for years around here. I'm glad to hear my pastor affirm it. So we know the story. He pro he's a prodigal. He takes his dad's wealth, which in the Jewish context says, I wish you were dead because he has no respect for his father. This is one of the other fruit of a real prodigal. They don't respect the authority of the father. You don't fellowship with that person, period. You don't let your wife fellowship with that person. You, that's a lawless, demonized human being. When they don't respect authority, when they don't respect their father's authority, you don't fellowship with them. You don't reply to their text. You block them. You don't answer their calls. You tell everybody, just so you know, they're out of fellowship with your father. Just so you know, they're out of fellowship with my husband. They're out of fellowship with dad. They're not just out of fellowship. They're mocking dad. That's a prodigal. So in the Jewish context, when he says, Father, give me my inheritance, what he's saying is, I wish you were dead. Well, if that's the case, then go on. You're dead. If I'm dead to you, that means you're dead to me. And that's how the father treats the prodigal. Not out of hatred, but out of justice. Proper biblical justice. And he lets him go and does his own thing, knowing the kid doesn't have the smarts to manage that money because he didn't make it in the first place. And so when he finally does come home in a pig pen, smelling of feces, eating corn kernels that are left over in manure, which is where you should let your prodigal get spiritually. Don't sneak them burger money. Let them eat their feces covered corn bits so that they will come to themselves in their senses and say, I'm an idiot. My dad's slaves eat better than this. I will go home and be a slave to my father. We don't do slavery. We don't even do that level of servitude. What it basically means is I will come home. I will submit to the authority. I will submit to my father's requests, my father's requirements, my father's household, my father's rules. Because the repentance picks up where the rebellion left off. And if they're not willing to pick up where the rebellion left off, they're still a prodigal. The sin was against their father. They said, I wish you were dead. Blankety blank, you and your authority. You don't know what you're talking about. Give me my money. I'm better than you. And that's where the repentance picks up. Repentance isn't this little piecemeal kind of ramp back up, just kind of warm back up, just kind of warm back up. How can we fellowship if we don't fellowship? Come on. No, 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 no. That's a coward. That's a demon. That's false. No, no. This kid, to his credit, comes back and restores just like he cut off. Face to face. 
saying, have mercy on me, Father. You give me the commandment. I will obey you. Just make me a servant in your house. I will do whatever you tell me to do. That's the fruit of repentance. Anything less than that, they're still demonized. And you and I don't have permission to feed them, reply to them, text them, or nothing. You just, if you're going to text them, hey, repent, you're still going to hell. Not too late. You got breath in your lungs and doctrine in your head. You know what to do. Repent. That's, so some of you, because you're dealing with this, that's how you reply to them. Repent. You're a prodigal. Repent. You're a prodigal. Luke 15. Hey, the backslider is filled with their own ways. That's how you deal with them. Anything less than that, you're changing the gospel. Anything less than that, you're in your own wisdom trying to restore a person who doesn't want restoration. So he comes back and look what the father says about him. Well, let's look at the true repentance. Verse 21, the son said unto the father, because that's where the rebellion began anyway. Mothers are often pulled because they're emotional. They don't have the authorization of the home. Some of you mamas with prodigals, you better be careful. You're not undermining your husband's authority, going behind your husband's back, because that makes you a partaker of your prodigal sin. And your household can't afford two prodigals. And husbands, don't, feel, don't be afraid to pull the slack out of your rebellious wife and thump her for being emotionally immature. We never said this was easy, but this is gospel. And Jesus says, my commandments aren't grievous. So he says, father, because that's the authority they rebelled against. Father, not Chris, not Billy. Father is a term of authorization and authority and endearment. Not Mr. McMichael. Father, the term I still called you when I was submitted to you. The term I called you when I honored you. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no more worthy to be called your son. That's repentance. That's a contrition. That's a, I have done something so horrible, I don't even deserve to be acknowledged as your kid anymore. The opposite of that is thinking we're still equal. I have to tell my kids, and they're just, they're good kids at 10, 8, and almost 5. Lydia's almost 11. Sweetly, mostly Lydia, she's such a strong personality. She said, I said, sweetie, you're not my equal and you never will be my equal. I got onto my wife the other day because we were on the phone. I was discussing stuff I needed done for the ministry and she interrupts me to talk to Lydia. She comes back on the phone. Some of you women are really lame at this too. I said, woman, don't ever interrupt me to speak to one of our creations. Right now, I'm dealing with you as the pastor and the leader of our church, and you're about to take a service, and this is what I want done. Don't you ever interrupt me to talk to one of our creations. We don't submit to pots we make. We don't submit to gardens we cut. We don't submit to kids we make. She said, yes, sir, please forgive me. So then we carry on. You're all real quiet because you don't realize authority works that way. <laughs> I would never interrupt my pastor on the phone to talk to one of you. I would hold my finger up. But honestly, you're more respectful than that. Because you know, like, okay, pastor's on the phone. Well, our kid's only that way because we've let them do that. My kids know, they come to me, I hold my finger up and I snap at them. And I don't even, for you guys, don't stop a phone call with you for my kids. So she said, yes, sir, I'm sorry, forgive me. And so then one of the kids walked in the room and said something, and I heard her say, I'm going to spank you when I get off the phone with your father. I thought, well, there we go. That's how discipleship works. <laughs> Felt like God. I spoke it. Now it is. There we go. So we don't submit to creations. My kids I made, they're, they're under me. 
So there's a problem when a prodigal thinks they're equal to the man and woman that created them. And the only reason they think that way is either they're retarded, they have a demon, or you didn't train them better. It's our job to teach our kids, I made you. You will always be my creation. Therefore, you will always be in, inferior to me. Now, there comes a time when you'll outgrow me in Christ, and I'll defer to you because you have more spiritual knowledge than I do, but I'll always be your father, and there'll always be a commandment that says you honor me because I'm the one that made you. One of my friends said, I told my sons, I made you and I'll make another. <laughs> All right. He said, I'm no more worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For my son, which was just kind of doing his own thing, and we, we, we were still texting and tweeting and, you know, I was saving some money to buy him this whatever. How did the father view his son? Dead. That's how you mark a prodigal. You treat them as if they were dead. Now, you could argue that doesn't sound very Jesus, but who in the world is talking right here? What, are you dumb? It's red letters. Thankfully, somebody said, these people are so dumb. We should make the words of Christ in red so they don't forget who's talking. That it's not a narration at this point. This is the doctrine of Christ coming out of Christ. This father who got his son back reveals to us how he viewed his son the whole time he was gone. Dead. Why? Because that's how he was treated by his son. But when the son comes alive again, he can be treated like he's alive again. Amen. My son that was dead, he says, is alive again. And he was lost. So let's just know how he views him. He was lost. Pagan. And I don't fellowship with the heathen. That's a Jewish commandment. So he sees them as two different things, dead and lost. If we want to regain our prodigals, we have to treat them the same way. Some of you have nursed along your prodigals. You've kept them on a wicked life support because you didn't obey this passage that even though I've only taught it once or twice every quarter, for the last 10 years, you never went and studied it for yourself to figure out how God would have you treat your prodigal. You've nursed them along on life support because if you'd have treated them as dead and lost 10 years ago, you'd have had them back 10 years ago. But as it is, they're still prodigals because you won't obey the scripture because, you know, that's my child or that's my brother or, you know, that's, 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 that's my grandkid. I get it. Emotions are powerful things, but the word of God cuts to that malarkey. He that was lost is found. And they began to be merry. Now his elder son was in the field. And as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto them, thy brother has come and they've killed the fatted calf because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and treated him. So now why is the brother angry? This is this guy, the brother becomes the bad guy, but I want you to see he's not a bad guy without reason. The whole house's doctrine for years has been he's dead and gone. So this son shared the same doctrine as his dad. We treat brother as dead and gone. And now he's back and he's not been informed of the repentance. So he's upset. But what I want you to see is that even the siblings treated the prodigal the same way. Now, granted, he has to get his heart right now because he doesn't see the sincerity and the penitence of his brother, but at least he had his dad's doctrine because he is the submitted brother. Even the siblings treated 
the prodigal as dead and gone. And this is how we get our prodigals back. Amen. Because if somebody's helping the prodigal, the judgment of God is being postponed. And we don't have permission to bring blessing when God has brought judgment. Even Balaam, the soothsaying fool, said, I can't curse what God has blessed. And I can't bless what God has cursed. How dare we play soothsaying Balaam and try to bless what God Almighty has cursed. So let's look at a few passages here with the time we have to understand who we have to withdraw from. Philippians 3 we looked at. Let's go there again. Philippians chapter 3. Hopefully that gives you some more information on how to treat prodigals. Philippians chapter 3. One of the other things I said Wednesday night, the Bible has a doctrine of marking people. That is very judgmental. We mark people. We mark them as the best player in football, and we give them a trophy for it. We mark them as the best actor. We give them a trophy for it. We mark them as first place. We give them a gold medal. We mark them as employee of the year and give them a spot bonus. We mark them as worthy of going to jail, and they're arrested. We mark them as worthy of demotion, and we fire them. So even life emulates the spirit realm in that we're always marking people. The Bible tells us to mark those worth following and follow them and mark those who are worth cutting off and cut them off. We often get our markers mixed up. We mark those worth following and we cut them off because we don't want to be held to that standard. And we mark those of a lesser degree and we follow them because that's an easier standard. We don't have permission to mix up markers. Philippians 3, verse 17. Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so. So mark them that walk like Paul did. Mark them as you have as an example. So in our church, we try to maintain a high standard on our elders and our deacons. So you have somebody worth following if you can't figure things out. But we're to mark righteous people. Verse 18, for many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. And so the Bible defines what is the enemy of the cross. It's not someone with a pentagram around their neck sacrificing chickens and goats on the weekend. Who is an enemy of the cross? It's not a Muslim who is hostile. We call it a militant Muslim or an extremist. It's not a, a radical Hindu. It's more subtle than that. And yet the scriptures tell us, tells us their end first. Their end is destruction. So we don't fellowship with people who are going to fall apart. You have to carefully fellowship with anybody, even if they're not hostile, if their life is falling apart, because that decay can rub off on you and I. Their end is destruction, whose God is their belly. So this is probably one of the foremost characteristics of an enemy of the cross, which seems so subtle, but it is the absolute truth because it's Scripture. An enemy of the cross is someone who lives for themselves. They do what they want, when they want, as they want. It's lawlessness. This is contrary to the cross because the cross is not my will, your will be done. They also glory in their shame. They see no problem with the sins they have done. They brag about it. They say, who are you to judge? Well, I'm just reading what the scriptures say about you. I want to be found in the positive verses, not the negative ones. So really with these two, uh, and the third one here, who mind earthly things, this helps build this trifecta. We don't count the end of the destruction. That's the final judgment for them. These three things define their attitude. It's the attitude that makes them the enemy of the cross. They're, they are consumed of the natural, they glorify their sin. They are not ashamed of it. And they do what they want when they want as they want. That is an enemy of the cross. Because the cross teaches us the opposite. The cross teaches us to mind heavenly things. 
The cross teaches us to glorify in Jesus and to be ashamed of sin. And the cross teaches us to submit everything we have to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So when we look at that as the definition for the enemy of the cross, there's a lot more enemies than we ever speculated. We thought it was a hostile politician. We thought it might have been some kind of heretic of a preacher. It can be your nephew. It can be your mama. They live for themselves. They'll teach you how to do so because bad company corrupts good morals. So when you're considering those in your life you may have to withdraw from, here's a list. Do they live for themselves? Do they glorify and brag about their sinfulness? Do they mind earthly things? you got to be mindful of that. Go with me to 2 Timothy, and this will be our last little passage here. Please remember, there's at least seven or eight places where the Bible says, have no fellowship, withdraw from them, don't walk with them. And that doesn't give us a free pass if we share DNA or last name. Let Jesus pick your friends and family. As the Lord said, who are my mother and brethren, but those who do the will of my father. 2 Timothy chapter uh, 3, verse 1. This know also that in the last days, which is the day we live in, perilous times shall come. Uh, another translation is a, a time when there is a loss of power. Now we can stop there and we could expound for a minute and say, sinfulness will suck your power. Running with carnal people will suck your power. Not to be woo-woo spooky, but as a pastor, I can tell when the glory of God is on people and when dinginess is on people. And dinginess only comes on people when they stop seeking God and begin to run with worldly things. It's almost like dingy. Sometimes it looks like dingy bathwater. That's not... When I say dingy, I think of dingy bath water or dingy sink water when you've done dishes and the soaps, the bubbles fade away and you're left with this nasty dishwater. You can see that, not that it's spiritual dishwater, but that's what it looks like. Like You're just dingy. That's a loss of power. That's a perilous person. Perilous. They're in peril because they have no strength to win. But how does that come about? Well, this list of stuff we're about to see. Men shall be lovers of their own selves. That comes back to... Their God is their belly. They shall be covetous. That's minding earthly things. Boasters. That's earthly things. Proud. Blasphemers. Disobedient to parents. Disobedient to parents, like the prodigal. Unthankful. Unholy. Without natural affection. That means they're inhuman. They're heartless. They don't know how to properly love. Truce breakers. That means they they can't just keep the peace. False accusers, that's the word satanos or blasphemio. I can't remember. It's one or the other. I think it's Satan, actually, in the Greek. Incontinent, that means no self-control. Fierce, despisers of those that are good. (laughs) This may seem extreme to you. One of the rules I I learned about the kingdom years ago, probably 20-plus years ago, I learned it from, I think, Dr. Dufresne or Nancy Dufresne, his wife. But they said this statement. I was in a meeting with them, and it struck really strong with me. They said, if you attack my pastor, I'm done with you. Because you add nothing to my life, and that's who God's assigned me to. Now, I'm not saying that for my glory this morning or my sake, but 
if, like, I still feel that way. If you attack my pastor, I'm going to have to retreat from you until you repent. When I first connected with Dr. Barclay, and I was still working at the zinc mine, pastoring the church, and then full-time at the zinc mine as the, uh, as the working there, I had a very dear friend of mine who was connected to Dr. Barclay, called me up out of the blue. We hadn't talked in a year or two. And he said, hey, I just saw that you, you've connected with Doc. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. God dealt with me to make him my pastor. He said, oh. And then he began to subtly run down Dr. Barclay. Well, you know, me and Doc don't agree on everything. And I thought, well, no, what that means is you disagree with some of the stuff he teaches. Me and Doc, like pastor has these debates with you. <laughs> and this, and he had probably 15 or 20 minutes. And the whole time he's talking, I kind of tune it out. And I start revisiting our previous conversations where he's talking about how much he's struggling with things. And then I'm mindful enough to think, I just connected with Dr. Barclay. All of the demon realm knows I already don't like Dr. Barclay. And I'm having to learn how to like him because I have a divine assignment from God to connect with him. And here, a dear friend of mine who obviously has a bone to pick with him just happens to call me up out of the blue to slander. Whose church, by the way, is really suffering financially and membership-wise. And so I got off the phone and I said, well, I mark that and I curse that. Father, may he repent. And that just confirms I'm where I need to be. But I can't fellowship with that man. And I had to retreat from him for a couple years. And, and anyway, long story short, I could see that that was just going to hurt me. Despisers of those that are good. We've all heard it. Even if you come from another church and you were faithful there, people mocked you for the church you went to. You still go to that church? You're not over at EWC still, are you? Yeah, how many churches have you been to, tramp? You can build a church real big in this town just stealing up all the goats. It isn't just a spirit-filled thing. I run mostly with Baptists now. They joke about how they have church movement from this church to this church to this church to this church. They joke about it in their meetings. Even the Baptists are little church tramps, just like the Pentecostals. And so they'll say, you're still over there. Well, they're doing a new thing over here. It's like, no, they're not. That's the same old, same old. And they just happens to draw all you goats over there. I don't want to be anywhere goats are comfortable. Be careful of those that despise those that are good. Traitors, heady, high-minded, Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. That sounds like Philippians 3. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such, invite to your Thanksgiving dinner. Of such, have them over for Christmas, because you might be able to finally win them to Christ. Hey, it's Christmas time, and it's all about family, and I just want my family together. So we should violate Scripture for the sake of an American holiday. God honors the American holidays, you know, and he puts his scriptures on pause for us, we little Americans. We can throw out all of his governance concerning family and apostates and rebels and prodigals because, you know, after all, it's Thanksgiving and it's so important to grandma. It's the holidays. We used to have such great Christmas present opening times on Christmas morning, and God knows I miss my prodigal, so he'll wink at my rebellion and my lawlessness so that I can have a warm hug for my prodigal who hates my God while I risk them poisoning the other members of my family and bringing their demon to the eggnog table. Huh. They two go together, demons and eggnogs, you know. <laughs> we had our elder leadership dinner last night, and I was sitting with Gary 
and I I honestly thought he had a cup of queso dip because we had Chipotle catered. And I thought, well, that's where all the queso's going because the thing was half empty over at the eating table. I said, that's queso? He said, that's eggnog. No milk product to be drunk should be that thick. (laughs) No, it says from such, turn away. Now, this word is only used once in the whole Bible, and it's right here. I want to give it to you. I want to tell you what it means, because it isn't hugs just because it's Thanksgiving or because they have a baby you want to see. Grow up. Honor your God. We've got enough babies in this church if you want to hold one. (laughs) And you guys just keep making them. Somebody... They heard about more babies. I said, Pastor, you're really growing that church? I said, I'm not growing it. Those men and women are growing this church. <laughs> I'm not growing this church. From such turn away, I'm pulling this up in the Greek. It means to avoid, to deflect away, to turn away. They show up and you turn them away. They show up for your dinner. And you say, I love you with the love of Christ, but you're the enemy of the cross. Some of you need to text your loved ones and say, according to this scripture, you're the enemy of the cross, and I must turn you away. Now, the hopes of that is not to be hateful. The hopes of that is not to be unkind, though it is unkind. It's biblical, though, is that if you can see every Christian in your life turning you away, there'll come a day where Jesus may do the same thing. Jesus did it. I'm sorry, let us in, let us in. And did the Lord Jesus let them in? He said, depart from me. I'm going to add, I turn you away. If they can see little micro judgments of that now, and we, the body of Christ, we, the loved ones who serve Jesus, if we're turning them away, the hopes is they'll be ashamed. They'll see the picture that if everybody who loves God is turning me away, I remember a sermon about Jesus turning people away. If Jesus turns people away, what happens to us if we let them in? Our judgment is our own fault. So let's go back and look at this list of people that we are to turn away. Those that love themselves. Those that are greedy. Those that are prideful and boastful. Those that blaspheme. That's going to be blasphemio. Those that are disobedient to parents. They dishonor the patriarch of the home. And don't honor his commandments or his house rules. That means you men got to be confident that you are the voice of God for your family. Unthankful, unholy. Again, let me, let me qualify this. Pagans come in this way. We get them born again. We got to work them through this. We understand these are Christians that have backslidden. So let's be clear. There, there's, there's two sides of this. When new people come in here, they're still, some of this is still in us. But we don't want it. We're dealing with folks, this is how they live, and they don't see a problem with it. Christians do turn that way, unfortunately, from time to time. Unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, that is satanos, incontinent, that means no self-control, they do what they want when they want, as they want, fierce, that means they're hostile, they're belligerent. I don't fellowship with people that gossip or slander on text. And if anybody in my home my mom or dad were ever to criticize or ruthlessly criticize Dr. Barclay and they didn't repent the first time I told them to shut up and repent, I would cut my parents off and they know I would. Because I love my mom and dad. They gave me my Christian foundation, but they don't hold my future in their hands. Me submitted to the right help helps me finish my race. 
I think we all believe that. I know Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. I'm not deceived. I've, I know Dr. Barclay is a man, but I'm assigned to him. If anybody starts criticizing my pastor and attacking him and won't repent, if I say, hey, shut up, that's my pastor. You don't have to agree with him, but you're not going to run him down to me. They won't repent after that. I'm done. I'm just done. I don't have time for it. I don't need that demon talking to me. That satanic slander. I don't deal with folks. I, I don't care who they are. You just cut them off. False accusers, incontinent. That means no self-control. Fierce despisers of those that are good. They hate those that are righteous people. Traitors, heady. That's another arrogant thing. High-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. They live for self. This begins with living for self. It ends with living for self. They have a form of godliness. New Living Translation says they have religion, but they don't have the power to be saved. Something to that effect. From such, turn away. Reject. What was the other definition? Avoid. I feel like you're avoiding me. Well, you don't have to feel that way. I am avoiding you. <laughs> it's biblical. Sometimes you see him at the Walmart and your buggy just feels like it needs to turn the other way. It's biblical. This buggy obeys the scripture. It just turns the other way. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. So I'm going to give you two and walk away from you. <laughs> yeah. I think the Lord is ministering this to us because he wants to keep us safe. Because the demon realm knows we're good-hearted. We're tender-hearted. We want to save people. Don't misunderstand me. We, I want my loved ones to go to heaven. I want my family to serve Jesus the way I do and better than me. But we have to also understand the devil can use loved ones to pull us out of orbit. And the scriptures, as we've looked at, not even all the New Testament ones, but a, a several, they affirm this doctrine that there comes a time where we have to say, I love you, but we can't walk together anymore. And depending on their hostility, the cut may have to be more brutal. Would to God we could serve God like the one lady we met yesterday who's got 12 siblings or one of 12 and their family's vacation together with 40 grandkids. That's an exception and it's exceptional. Some of us have one sibling and Thanksgiving is tough. <laughs> Amen. Some of us, we're the only child and Thanksgiving alone is tough because we don't like ourselves. But what we want to do is make sure we honor the Lord Jesus and finish our race. Talk with the Lord over this stuff. Get extra help if you need to. It isn't promised to be easy on the heart, but it must be obeyed when God says it. I'm not telling anybody here to walk away from family. Some of you, you're already talking to me about some situations, and I'm telling you, you're going to have to put distance there. And the hopes is they'll come back one day and repent and say, Against you and my God, I've sinned. Father, forgive me. If you're going to mama, you're not repenting. You got to go to the head of your home. Just like if somebody slanders this church and they repent to all of you but not me, they're not right yet. When you repent to everybody but the person you sinned against, you've not repented. God has set up fathers and heads of home as that kind of gateway. And you got to go through the authority if you want restoration. Only weasels slip around and talk to siblings and aunts and work granddad and work great grandpa and, and work this person and that underling. No, you got to always point them up the chain. Nope, go to your father, go to your grandfather, go to your mother, go to mama. You sin against mama, not me. Go to mama. We have to repent to who we sin against. Amen.